If you have your Bible on you, you can turn to Colossians chapter 1. So we have started this new, uh, I don't want to call it a series, but a new book, the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossian church. We started last week in chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Today we're in verse 3. And before we jump into the word, let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning that you gave us your word. Everything we need to know is in your word. Everything we could possibly ever understand or contain into our minds and our thoughts and our emotions and our person is found in your word. And there is more than enough in your word, so much about you in your word that, that even our minds could, could not really get it all. And so we are not left with just this book that is a partial picture of you. Although, there's so much more to you as we'll see today. I just pray that as we get into your word, as we discover the truths that you have written for us in Colossians, that you would transform us into Christ's likeness and we would cling to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. <clears throat> I think we tend to think of the gospel as this truth that, that Jesus saved us and uh, that it is a truth that was applied to us long ago. I was saved uh, when I was six years old. So for me, the gospel, that's just old news. I turned 39 this week. That's, thanks. Uh, <laughs> um, that was what, 33 years ago. I've been a Christian for 33 years. So the gospel, that's, that's old news. I'm way beyond the gospel, right? And it seems like the only time the gospel comes up in our lives now is in two ways. One, you hear a preacher preaching about it. You're like, yeah, yeah, the gospel, yeah. And I know the gospel. Jesus died on the cross for my sins, rose from the grave, and I just have to believe. The gospel is so much more than that. It is that, 100%, and that is vital absolutely essential but it is also more than that and it only comes up when we hear it preached or when we're like hey lost people need to hear the gospel but how many believers whether you've been saved for two years or 33 years how many believers think about the gospel apply the gospel live the gospel consider the gospel see the gospel at work in your life so what i want you to see today is not just the gospel as this this message for unbelievers, this Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. But what I think Paul begins to show us <clears throat> is what the gospel does in the life of a believer. Not in the life of a non-believer who hears the gospel and gets saved, but the life of a believer who has already put their faith in Christ. Who's already believed the gospel. And, I, and it's the, the gospel is so much more than just Jesus died on the cross for your sins. The gospel never stops it never ends it always works it keeps going the gospel is just as active in your life right now as it was when you first believed and i think it's a shame i really do think it's a shame that so many of us try with our own power and with our own strength and our own resources to produce fruit in our lives that only the gospel can produce and i don't think we want that i don't think you want that we might live like that, but I don't think any of us genuinely want that. We want the gospel. We want 
genuine gospel fruit. But before we can look at the fruit of the gospel in the life of a faithful follower of Christ, I think first we must understand how the gospel keeps working in you. So we're in Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. And Paul writes, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Paul didn't always pray for the Colossians, but when he did, he always thanked God. And Paul is specifically thankful for the Colossians' fruit of the gospel. And the specific fruit that Paul talks about in verses uh, 4 and 5 are faith, love, and hope. However, though it is the Colossians who are acting in faith, love, and hope, Paul doesn't give thanks or credit or glory to the Colossians. He gives it to God. He says, we always thank God when we pray for you. He doesn't say, I always thank you when we pray for you. I thank God when we pray for you. So Paul gives God the credit and the glory and the thanks. So why does God get the thanks? First of all, I don't think any of us are surprised by that. That's not news to a believer. Of course God gets the credit and the glory and the thanks. But why? So in, in verses 3 through 5, we see the Colossians and three things that they are the three fruit that they are producing that is a product of the gospel. And those things are faith, love, and hope. And then we get to the end of verse 5, and this is what Paul says. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So in verses 3 through 8, today we're only doing verse 3. In verses 3 through 8, there's all this, in verses 4 and 5, there's gospel fruit in verses uh, six through eight, there's gospel fruit, and it's all fruit. And right in the middle of this text is this statement of this you have heard in the word of the truth, the gospel. That is the foundation, the root, the center of all this fruit, all this godly living, this faithfulness to Christ, the righteousness in the church of, the, uh, of Colossae. When Paul writes this letter and says, I always thank God for you, he's thanking God because the only reason they have anything productive or fruitful in their life is because of the gospel. The gospel is from God. In fact, I'd say it's more than that. Faith, love, and hope are the fruit of the gospel at work in their lives. So the question is, how is it that the gospel that saves us also continues to produce fruit? How is it that the gospel still works? Because if you think about it, what is the gospel? It's this idea, right? It's these thoughts kind of that we, that we gain from the Bible. The gospel is Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's what we think of the gospel as. And so how does this idea keep working? Because ideas don't work. People work ideas, right? So how is it that the gospel, that's an idea, work? Well, the gospel's more than an idea. It's more than a thought. It's more than theology. It's more than a doctrine. God is the gospel. The gospel is that you get God in Christ. And that's the good news. The good news is that you get God. And the gospel still works because God still works. Therefore, the fruit of the gospel in our lives is God's work. And so, therefore, God gets the credit and the glory and the thanks. Now, I think this is a concept that we 
believers, all of us, at various times and in different ways in our lives, depending on where we're at in a particular season of our life, I think this is a concept we tend to unintentionally, that's an important word, unintentionally get wrong when it comes to how the gospel works. We know that God has provided all the elements of the gospel and that he alone is to be thanked. We would all declare that. Oh, everything that I believe about Jesus, that's from God, it's for God, is God's work. And we know that, but what we know and what we do often do not align. We may joyfully receive that initial salvation from God, but when it comes to sanctification, when it comes to spiritual growth, living and growing in the gospel, we tend to resort to our own provisions, to our own power and our own effort to live out a godly, gospel-centered life. And if you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, I can see that, but I mean, I know the gospel. I mean, this, this doesn't sound like this message really applies to me because I know that everything that is good in my life is from God and from Jesus, and I give him thanks, and that's it. But, and you know that. You know that in your head. So when you pray, you talk like that. When you talk to other believers, you talk like that. When you think about the gospel, you think like that. But what do you do? Because I think what we do and what we think and believe and say are not always the same thing. And there is plenty of evidence in your life, plenty of evidence in your life when you are trying on your own to produce fruit that only the gospel can produce. And I'm going to talk about that evidence later. But I think that is a problem for Christians, that we unintentionally think that the gospel is in the past and now it's our turn. I've been saved I'm a new creation in Christ. Those are all biblical truths. Therefore, now it's my turn to live a godly life. Now, I'm not saying that you don't have a participation in living a godly life. I'm not saying you're not involved. Of course you are. Philippians 2 tells us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That word salvation means sanctification. Meaning, now that you're saved, work that salvation out to fruition and to completion in holiness. But we often don't read the next verse there, which says, but it is God who works in you for his good pleasure. So we participate with God in our spiritual growth. But I think mostly we know that, we think that, we say that, but we don't do that. We don't do what we're supposed to do when it comes to sanctification. I'll explain what that means in, as, as we go along. And I think we turn to ourselves unintentionally, turn to ourselves to kind of show God that now that I'm saved, watch how good of a Christian I can be. We know that's legalism. We know that's not right. When I say it out loud, you're like, I know that's not right. But we live that way. But what Paul shows us is the power of the gospel. What Paul shows us is that the gospel not only saves us, it preserves us. And the gospel not only preserves us, it nourishes us. And the gospel not only nourishes us, it protects us. So we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at these four things. How the gospel saves, the gospel preserves, the gospel nourishes, and the gospel protects. So number one, the gospel saves us. The gospel saves us 
through faith, which is a gift from God. There's this obvious, like, you know, popular verse that I think many of us know, verse, uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. All the elements that are required for our salvation are a gift from God. We, we don't deserve salvation. We all agree on that. But God gives us his favor anyway. We all agree on that. It's called grace. We all agree on that. How do we get this grace? Through faith. We all agree on that. And we, we don't pursue God or desire God at all. I mean, if you, this verse is, these verses I just read, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, if you back it up to verse 1, Ephesians 2, 1, this is what we find. This is who we really are. He says in Ephesians 2.1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. That's who you follow without Christ. That's insane. Jesus said that in John chapter 8. You don't know me, so you don't know my father, which means your father is the devil. Probably not the best evangelical you know, avenue when you go to people like, Hey, is God your father or Satan? Which one? You want Jesus or Satan? Like, people are going to be like, you're a nut job. You're crazy. So don't use that. But it's true. I mean, it's true. We see this. Jesus says it. Paul says it here. You're dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. That was us, sons of disobedience, among whom we all, not some, all once lived in the passions of our flesh, that's disgusting. Carrying out the desires of the body, that's disgusting. And our mind, which is disgusting. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart, that means the mind, is deceitful above all things and desperate for wickedness. And we were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's us, without Christ. But have you read verse 4? Listen to verse 4. But God. So, I love this verse, and you know what I love about this verse? That this is like Christian's life verse, and he loves this verse so much, he tattooed it on his arm. So, it's a great verse. This is huge. This is, this is everything. Verses 1 and 3 are like, you are doomed, and verse 4 is like, but God. You know what that means? That's the gospel. That's God showing up. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us who are in Jesus. Oh, how do I get this but God? How do I get this rich mercy and grace and goodness? Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Well, did I do anything? No! Nothing! Why? So that you can't boast. We don't pursue God or desire God at all. That is the beauty of the gospel, that God would come for people who hate him. I can't tell you how many times in my life people have done the thing, people in church should be, I look at them and think, you should be doing this, but you're not. And I think, ah, I don't even want to talk to that person. 
They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And God's like, seriously? You literally hate me, love your sin, pursue the passions of your flesh, you make war with me, and yet I came to you as a savior to save you, and you can't bear with somebody doing something you don't want in life? That's not even comparable. Where is the grace to them that I showed you? Yet God, even though we don't desire him, puts faith into us, infuses his faith into us as a gift, changing our desire and our will to love him and to desire him. And I think we all agree on that. We're all in agreement here that the gospel saves us by grace through faith. But what about after the moment of our salvation? What does the gospel do then? Does it just stop working because it's done? Is it finished? Is it's completed its work and save you? Now the gospel is just kind of lingering out in the ether waiting for us to go, oh, someone needs to get saved. Grab the gospel. Use it and apply it in this person's life. That's not what the gospel does. It is continually, actively working in us. It works after your initial salvation in many ways, three of which I'm going to show you now, which starts with number two. The gospel preserves us. The gospel preserves us through the endless ministry of Christ to keep us. Now, when I wrote this part of my sermon, I had literally a list of eight ways that the gospel preserves us. And then I was like, well, that's too many. Like, I know myself, this is going to be a two-hour sermon if I do all these. So I threw them all away and I kept just one. So you're welcome. And so... Number three, or I'm sorry, number two is the gospel preserves us through the endless ministry of Christ to keep us. Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That's Christ. That's who he's talking about. Jesus keeping us from stumbling and presenting us blameless before the presence of God's glory. And Jesus gets to do that with great joy. And the only way that Jesus can present you to the Father with great joy is if you look like Jesus, is if you're perfected like Jesus, is if he keeps you from stumbling and can present you as blameless. Blameless means perfect. And he's re it's a reference to the Old Testament sacrificial process where the, the priest would take a, a spotless blameless essentially lamb and sacrifice the lamb it was an image of christ who would come as the spotless blameless lamb and be sacrificed once and for all for our sins and jesus is saying i'm gonna make you like that perfect spotless and blameless and the and if i leave you to yourself if i just save you if I take the gospel, I died on the cross for your sins, and I applied to your life, and you get saved, and the gospel is like, okay, now you're saved, and the gospel just kind of floats away into the ether and just lingers out in space, uh, waiting for you to grab it to save somebody, but it's not actually actively working and applied to your life, then you're left to your own. Because if God is the gospel, and the gospel leaves us after salvation, that means God leaves us after salvation, which is not true. And if we are left to our own, even though we're saved, we will fail him. We will not be perfect. We will not be spotless or blameless. We will work on our own power, which is not sufficient to make ourselves holy. It will not work. And Jesus will have, at the end of our life, this 
spotted, stained, wicked, ugly, sinful, unholy, unrighteous, ungodly being to present to his father. And he's going to go, uh, here you go, God. And God's going to go, that, I can't, that can't spend eternity with me. That's, I'm holy and perfect. I can't let that wretchedness into my presence forever. That's impossible. So we can't be left to our own. The gospel has to stay applied to our lives. And if God is the gospel, it means Christ is constantly staying and applied to our lives. He is always actively keeping us. It is his reputation that is on the line. It is his perfection that he presents to the Father in us. He doesn't go, hey, look how good Mark was his whole life. Father, perfect, spotless, and blameless. If you know me at all, you know that can't be true. Right? If you know each other at all, you know that's not true of any of us. And so the only way in which we are preserved as perfect and spotless and blameless is if Jesus is actively and continually and constantly at work in our lives, interceding for us in our sin, advocating for us with the Father when we sin, saying and declaring and proclaiming to the Father, they are mine, they are perfect, they are righteous, that sin is not who they are. They are like me. And he has to stay active to keep us from stumbling. The way in which your salvation is preserved is by Christ constantly applied to your life. Christ constantly and actively working in you and on you and through you. You don't just get saved and then eternity is sealed and then you're done and he moves on and he goes, yeah, well, you're saved. I put you in a Ziploc baggie. You're good. You can't get unsaved. You can't get out. I'm just going to put you on the shelf. And when it's time to return, I'm going to grab you and bring you to the Father and go, look, I open up the bag. He's still, he's perfect, just like he was when I saved him. That's not how it works. Instead, he is endlessly, constantly interceding and working on us and in us and with us and through us and for us to keep us saved. If the gospel doesn't continue to work, then God doesn't continue to work. And because God is constantly at work in us, because Christ is constantly and always in us, if you look at the whole book of Ephesians, is about being in Christ. And this is what he says in Ephesians 1, 13. In Christ, you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That is a guarantee of your eternal salvation. But how does that salvation look in my daily life? It's Christ keeping me daily, keeping me from stumbling. And when I stumble, that's me, not Christ. And when I stumble and when I sin, 1 John 2, 1. I, John says, I tell you this, brothers, so that you do not sin. But when you do, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That is Christ always keeping you preserved. That's the gospel at work. Number three, the gospel nourishes. The gospel nourishes us through the constant ministry of the Holy Spirit who feeds the life and the mind of Christ into our souls. That's a very important statement, that we are nourished, the gospel nourishes us through the constant, that's key, constant ministry of the Holy Spirit who is in us and who feeds to us the life 
everything about Christ and his mind into our souls. In John 16, verses 7 and 14, Jesus says this. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That is the Holy Spirit taking the person of Christ, the attitude of Christ, the mind of Christ, the thoughts of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, everything that is Jesus, which is perfection, that is the Holy Spirit taking all of that and infusing him into us. Not just in two ways, really. One, when we get saved, the moment of salvation, when we're justified, all the perfection of Christ is completely ours. And we are perfected and justified and righteous before God. Positionally, we stand before God in a white gown of righteousness. And Jesus stands before us. This is Revelation chapter 19. Jesus stands next to us, also in a white gown, but his is dipped in blood. And his is stained so that ours isn't. And that is who we are right now before God. But it doesn't feel like that, does it? Do you feel like you're wearing a perfect, white, righteous gown of unstained perfection? Because I don't. The other reality of the gospel, of, of getting Christ from the Holy Spirit, is that we already are perfect, but not yet. So there's this not yet that we live in every day. We're not yet perfected. We're not yet righteous, even though we are already positionally perfected and righteous in Christ. But we live out the effectual reality of the imperfection of our sinful nature. In Galatians 5, we battle against sin. Our flesh wants to do this, and the Spirit of Christ wants to do this, and there's this tug of war for our souls. And Paul says, stop gratifying the desires of the flesh and put on the desires of the Spirit which are, and then he lists the fruit of the Spirit. We are working toward righteousness. We're working toward perfection, even though it's ours. And that's the beauty of working towards it, is we already know the conclusion. It's like running a race, knowing that you already won. But the race isn't boring because you already ran, or because you already won. You still have to climb trees. It's like the European cross-country. You guys know anything about European cross-country? I grew up running cross-country in middle school, and it was easy. You just have a starting line. You have a long run through, like, the forest, and if anything, there's a hill that's maybe, like, 10 or 20 feet high, and you can run up that hill. That's, that's about as complicated as it gets. European cross-country is totally different. You got to, like, jump over ponds. You got to, like, climb trees, climb up walls. It's just like, it's like, it's not cross-country. It's kind of like being in the military, it's completely different than our idea of cross-country. That's the Christian life. It's like I know at the end I win, but man, there's a huge obstacle in my way and I still have to climb it. The Holy Spirit's work is to help you climb that. And you can't climb it on your own. You need to be like Christ. And he's the one who applies it to you. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit, it does, he does many things. He regenerates us. He guarantees our salvation. He helps us pray. He comforts us in affliction, gives us peace, joy, hope. He, he convicts us of sin. He manifests himself through spiritual gifts. The Spirit does all kinds of work in us, which is the gospel at work in us. 
But one of the things he does specifically is the Spirit teaches us. And that's his nourishing ministry to us. That's his nourishing gospel ministry. That he teaches us about our Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now listen to this. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Why? That we might understand the things freely given us by God. So we receive the spirit of God, not the spirit of the world, so that we can understand the depths of God. And the only way we can understand the depths of God is if we have the spirit of God in us, because only the spirit of God knows the depths of God. So the spirit is our teacher. He knows God fully, but he's not distant. He's not this distant thing like, like, you know, we're we're living life and we got decisions to make and the spirit's off in the distance. He's like, hey, hey, remember Ephesians 2, 8 through 9? Don't forget. Oh, he's not even listening. Never mind. Like, that's not, the Spirit is not, like, distant, off, yelling at us, reminding us of things, or just, like, showing up when we need it. It's always there, constantly working in us, constantly, uh, actively infusing the mind of Christ into our hearts and our souls and our thoughts, guiding our thoughts and emotions to be like that of Jesus. And that is how the gospel nourishes us, with the Spirit himself being God and, and being the Spirit of Christ. He brings the nature of Christ into us as well as teaching us about the nature of Jesus through the word. So the continual work of the gospel to nourish you is the Spirit's constant work in you and on you and with you to transform you into the likeness of Christ, to grow you and to nourish you. You don't just get saved and stay saved. You get saved and then you get disciplined you get growth, you get changed, you get worked, you get struggles, you get problems, you get blessings, you get a road, you get a race, you get a trial, you get tribulations, you get a spouse who doesn't agree with everything you agree with, you get a boss who's a pain, you get a coworker who talks trash about you behind your back. You get a pastor who yells at you. All right, good. Woo! I was hanging on for that amen, man. Life's not easy. All of you know that. I am not preaching to you a gospel that you get saved and life's easy. It's perfect. I'm preaching a gospel to you that you get saved, and when you get saved, you are perfected. You stand before God in his perfect righteousness of Christ But today, it doesn't feel like that. And I know it, and you know it. And that's okay, because the gospel is at work. It did not just save you in the past. It is working on you now. And number four, the gospel protects us. The gospel protects us from sin. I think a better way to say this would be, The gospel protects us from ourselves. Because who are we? 
We are Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. That's who we are. But with Christ and with the gospel, we are Ephesians 4. I'm sorry, Ephesians 2, verse 4. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, is this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So we are all tempted to sin, just like Jesus was tempted to sin. Yet Jesus was without sin and never gave in to temptation. We, however, often fall for temptation and give in to temptation. We do not endure the temptation. And what Paul tells us is, you're not alone. We all been, everyone's been there. He says, this, this is not uncommon to men. Everybody goes through it. Everyone feels this. Everyone's tempted. This is what makes Jesus such a relatable high priest, such a good God and Savior and shepherd, is he knows your temptation. He's been there, and he knows it better than you. You might think to yourself, well, Jesus might know my temptation, but he doesn't know what it feels like to fall into sin and suffer the consequences of that temptation, so he really doesn't know. No, actually, he knows it better than you, and the reason he knows it better than you is for two reasons. Number one, because he endured the fullness of temptation. Temptation as a burden and as a weight fell on his shoulders. And what we do when temptation falls on our shoulders is we carry it and we carry it and we carry it. We go, I give up. I can't handle this temptation. I'm just going to sin because the burden of not sinning and wanting to do the sin is too great. And we let go. And we go, ah, I'm going to sin. And we didn't endure the pain of bearing the temptation. So we had an easier road. Jesus carries that burden and walks and walks and walks till he's on his knees, dragging that temptation through to the end until it finally leaves him and he is victorious and does not sin. You don't know that road. You don't know that weight. You don't know that burden. You are not perfect. You have not carried every temptation through with endurance to the end. You don't know what he knows. His journey in temptation has been far worse. And if there is anything in you that thinks to yourself, yeah, but he still doesn't know what it feels like to eventually feel the weight and the burden of letting go of that temptation and feeling the pain and the sorrow and the agony of that sin when I give in, and you are wrong because he died on the cross with every ounce of your sin. Nobody knows sin like him. Nobody. Nobody has bore the weight of all of your sins. You, yourself, have never carried at one moment all of your sins. Never. Because you have not yet carried tomorrow's sins or next year's sins. And Jesus has. He has not only bore the weight on his shoulders and in his body, all of your past sins, all of your present sins, and all of your future sins, and not just yours, but every elect and chosen person's. We don't know his road of endurance and temptation, and we don't know the weight of sin like him. But we all face it. 
And we all feel it. So we've got this beautiful, great high priest in Christ that is a constant application of the gospel in the Holy Spirit saying, remember, remember, remember the Son. Remember the Christ. Remember your Savior, the love of your soul. Remember Jesus as you endure this temptation, as you're tempted to sin, as you're enduring sin, as you're, as you're trying not to sin. Just remember him. He's been here. He's done this for you, so you don't have to. You might be thinking, well, how, how do I do that? How do I not... If I don't have to, then how do I do it? I'll tell you in a second. But here's the blessing and the answer to your temptation. It's in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God is faithful. That is the gospel. That God shows up. That's the gospel. God is the gospel. The gospel shows up in our temptation. And God does not just leave you on your own to face your temptation, but instead he provides an escape. That's what Paul says here, an escape, a way out. So what is the escape from the temptation? It's the gospel. God himself, that's the escape. God is the way out. Christ is the way out. That's the point. You're, you're, you're on this track. You're carrying sin. You're being tempted. You don't want to do it. And you're on this path. And there's a door on the side of the path. And it's open. And, and through that door is, is freedom from sin. And Jesus opened that door for you. And he goes, just, just come in. I'm here. God is faithful to be an open door in your path to walk through. You just have to turn and walk through it. And we're like, no, I love my sin. I'm going to go to the grave where you died, bring my shovel, dig it all back up, and carry it again. And, and we're reminded by the Spirit, that's not the gospel. The gospel is they're buried. Your sins are buried. And you are resurrected. You are free from sin. Galatians 5.1 Do not return again to the yoke of slavery. For freedom you have been set free. The way out is the faithfulness of God, and the faithfulness of God shows up in the gospel, and that is Christ. Let me say it like this. Have you found yourself complaining a lot more often lately? Have you been feeling a little unhappy, more unhappy than you normally are? Have you been a little dissatisfied? Uh, maybe dissatisfied with your spouse or annoyed with your children? Unhappy at work? Shows up in things like complaining about work, complaining about family, complaining about your wife, complaining about your husband, complaining about your children, whining, griping. Complaining about your ministry, frustrated with your ministry, frustrated with the people in your ministry. Are they annoying? Are they not doing things the way you want to do them? Are they not like you? Are they not perfect? These are all signs that you're starting to lose the battle to temptation. And I, I think if you're like me, if you're like me, I can admit this, and I'm hearing my pastor say to me, are you struggling with complaining and dissatisfaction and being annoyed with people? And you start thinking about those people that you're annoyed with, you're like, huh, that dude does need to hear this message. 
This isn't about that dude. This isn't about someone else. This isn't about anyone other than you. This is about you. Stop thinking about other people. Stop thinking about how your ministry or your life or your family or your spouse or your marriage or your work life would be so much better if that person applied these truths. Your life would be so much better if that person fixed themselves. They're not the problem. You are. I'm not obtuse. I know I'm the problem too. I get it. I'm just like you. We're all the same. We love our sin. We do. You want to know why we love complaining? We, we just, we love it. It's a habit. That's why. Everything doesn't go our way. Nothing ever goes your way. It's not supposed to. You're a Christian. Whoever, if anyone ever told you just get saved and life will be wonderful and you can go to heaven is a liar and it's a false gospel. We're in our life group the other day, and Christian teaches our life group, and he's like, he refers us to 2 Timothy and says, anyone who desires to live a godly life will have to suffer. That's the gospel. It's not easy. It's hard. It's frustrating. People are frustrating. People are sinners, and when sinners meet sinners, it looks like the Packers last week. That's what it looks like. A disaster. <laughs> you lose every time. 38-3 to three or whatever the score is. I don't even know anymore. I give up. I swear I was going to stop talking about the Packers, but I just saw an opportunity to make fun of them now, and I'm feeling like, anyways, I'm just going to move on. So, that's the real problem, the Packers. Okay, so... <laughs> Here's the reality is that we just, we think like, you know, if, 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 if these people around me would just be a little better, if I could just, and I think it when I preach, I'm serious. I think to myself, well, none of, all of you think that, like, how do you fix other people? You can't. I get to. I get to stand at a pulpit and tell you how to behave. I get to stand up here and preach to you like, you should be like this and think that way and do that. And if you're not, you're wrong. So everyone do this. And I'm like, my life will be so much easier if everyone just listens to me. <laughs> and like how wicked is that how, how, how selfishly obtuse is that kind of thought process for me to look at you and think if you would all just think and do the, and the reality is it's partially true because if, if I preach God's word and we do God's word we will be better but we need to get out of this rut of thinking that other people are the problem. Ephesians 6 says, other people are not your problem. We don't battle against people. We, battle against, uh, we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of darkness. Satan is our enemy. His army of demons are the enemy. They are tricking you. Your sin nature is the enemy. That's who we're fighting. You have to make war against your sin. You have to hate your sin. And you can't if the gospel is not actively alive and, and applied to your life constantly. Stop thinking that other people are the problem. And we love to complain because complaining is the habit that we've chosen. Everything goes wrong in my life. I don't like this or that. My ministry is frustrated. My job is frustrated. I'm not making enough money. This is going wrong in my life. All these difficulties and sufferings and trials. And you can identify the problem. It's like, well, this is happening because this person is doing this. And this person is doing this thing because they're like this. If they would stop being like this, it'd fix all that problem. 
And I don't have enough money because I can't find the right job and I can't find the right job because this is going on in my life and if that were fixed then I could whoop, have the right job and I'd have enough money and things would be fine. And we come up with this like route and, and instead of solving the problem, instead of dealing with the problem and facing it head on, we complain because it's a habit we've created and we get in this rut and this rut of complaining is so comfortable because we know it so well because it's our habit. Complaining and dissatisfaction and frustration and being unhappy with your spouse. This is, and your children, and, and your work, and your ministry, and any aspect of your life. That is the evidence I was talking about. That is the evidence of the gospel not at work in your life. That is evidence that you are losing the battle for joy and you are giving in to the temptation for misery. You are choosing misery when joy is right in front of you. But why? This week, Christian, a couple weeks ago, Christian said to me, Mark, keep your Friday the 17th open. I'm taking you golfing in Eau Claire. I was like, oh, cool. Do you know how far Eau Claire is from where we live? <laughs> He's like, yeah, yeah. How far? Hour and a half. Oh, okay, cool, yeah. I was like, all right, man, sure. Hour and a half, let's go. Fun. I'll just He's like, got to have your sermon done by Thursday. Okay. We go golfing on Friday. We get in the car after golfing. This is just two days ago. And we get back on the interstate to go home. And I'm like, I'm hungry. Let's go to a restaurant. So I pull out my phone and I'm looking at Google Maps and there's this little blue dot. That's us. And it's moving along the interstate. And I'm like, dude, we're going the wrong way. <laughs> we're going like towards like Madison. He's like, oh, yeah. Oh, oh, crazy. I'm like, yeah, you should like turn around right here. And he just keeps going. I'm like, or not. Uh, okay. So he just keeps driving. And he's like, should I turn around at like one of these police stops? And I was like, yeah, you should do that. And we like pass and I'm like, Okay, I guess, I guess you're not doing that either. I'm like, dude, Osseo is up here. We're now an extra hour out of the way. I mean, I'm really loving this time with you. We get to talk about a lot of things. And he's in the left lane, the, the exit's on the right, and we come up on it, and he's just like talking away. And now as I think back on it, he's just talking to distract me. And, and then the exit comes up, and he's like, oh, 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 we missed it. Oh, well, and we just keep going. I'm like, what is going on, dude? So I'm texting my wife, I'm like, Christian has kidnapped me. <laughs> and then she replies, you better be, are you serious? Are you going to be home at midnight? I'm like, uh, I don't know, honestly. <laughs> and then she sends me that angry mad face. I'm like, Christian, my wife is going to kill me. What are you doing? And then we just keep driving, like hours later. And I'm like, we're in Madison, dude. And then we go past Madison towards Milwaukee. I'm like, okay, something's going on here. So anyways, there really is no end to that story other than to tell you that they ended up being a surprise for me or whatever down in Milwaukee with my family. But my, the reason I bring that up is because Christian and I got three and a half hours, well, five hours that day in the car together just talking about you and ourselves and sin, church, life, ministry, gospel, Bible. It's good. Sports. We were talking about why we sin. 
and why we don't do what we should do. And Christian made a statement that was so simple and so easy and such a duh, and I've heard it a million times, but when he said it, it just felt like so profound. That fact that when he said it, it's all I could think about, and he kept talking, and I think I wasn't listening after that. Sorry. <laughs> but what he said is, dude, it's because we don't cling to Jesus. I was like, we don't. We have a role in this sanctification to cling to Jesus. Why are we losing the battle for joy and why are we giving in the temptation for a miserable life? Because we don't cling to Jesus. He is the gospel and the gospel works all day, every day, because Jesus works all day, every day. He is for you and with you and in you and working on you. Think about it like this. You, you know how, like, you've got children and you love your children? And, like, with my, like, eight-year-old and any, especially even younger, like, you know, i got a five-year-old or even, like, a two-year-old. And these kids are so young and they love you, mom and dad. And you go like this and they come running to you and they jump in your arms and you can pick them up and hug them and hold them. And they hug you back and they kiss you and you go, and they're like, ah, it's so fun and awesome. And you just love all this love with your children until they're about 12, and then they're like, start getting, starting to realize, like, you're weird. <laughs> you know, they get a little too self-aware, a little self-conscious, insecure, unsure of themselves. You're not. You love them more than you did the day before, so you still want to hug and kiss them, and you grab them, and, you, and they're like, ah. Right? And they, you go to hug them, and instead of running to you and embracing you, they, they close their arms and they turn their shoulder against you and you're hugging them on the, by the side now and you're like, come on, hug me! And they resist. That's us. That's us and Jesus. Parents, you have no idea what it means to love someone the way Jesus loves you. You don't know. None of us know. It's beyond your wildest imagination. That's how much he loves you. And we... We're like, we're like a squirming teenager when he tries to embrace us and we turn while he tries to love us and he's interceding for us and he's there for us and he's declaring victory in us and he's pouring his righteousness into us and he's impressing into us a hatred for sin into our minds and yet we act like this uncomfortable teenager who doesn't want to be bothered by such amazing grace and love. We want misery! When joy and love is in our embrace, we choose a miserable existence of complaining. The gospel doesn't just save us. It it, the gospel doesn't just save us and it doesn't just preserve our salvation. It doesn't just nourish our souls. It protects us from ourselves. It protects us from our sinful nature, from our weakness to love our sin more than our Savior. I am not telling you that you have to go out and work harder at being a better Christian, that you have to start hating sin more and loving righteousness more and you've got to be better and stronger and pay attention more and resist temptation and stop complaining and you won't be miserable anymore and you'll be happy. That's not what I'm saying. I am telling you that you simply need to turn around and embrace the gospel. Amen. You simply need to turn around and embrace Jesus. It is that easy. He doesn't make the gospel hard. He came to you in the gospel when he saved you and he hasn't been, been embracing you ever since and we still are like, I just don't know if I'm willing to just give you myself. 
I have created a habit of hating things and complaining about them and making my own choices and doing my own things instead of doing what you want me to do. And the reason, God, I don't want to do them is because I don't know how good it feels to turn around and hold you. I don't cling to Jesus. And so sin feels comfortable. And we create the habit of choosing sin and then going to God and going, oops, sorry, I feel terrible about this. Thank you for your grace. And Paul says in Romans 6.18, that's not how the gospel works. Does grace need to abound because your sin abounds? Paul says, by no means. You're slaves to righteousness now. Turn and embrace your master. Now I'm going to say one last statement. And I'm going to say it in a negative sense so that it has a grip on you. That's my aim here. <clears throat> the destruction of this church and the destruction of this church's ministries is dependent on your willingness, not someone else's, yours, is dependent on your willingness to stop squirming out of Jesus' arms and just turn around and embrace our Lord, Jesus, who is the gospel. Let's pray. God, we say we hate sin. We do really actually hate our sin, but we act like we love it. Help us to cling to you. Help us to cling to you. Help us to turn to you. We don't have to work. We just have to turn. We don't have to walk even. We don't have to run. You already ran to us. We don't have to jump. You already jumped for us. We don't have to die. You already died for us. We don't have to be perfect. You were already perfect for us. We just need to wrap our arms around you. Help us live in your gospel. Help us cling to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week. I'm dismissed. <laughs>